0: Well, good morning, Grace Point. Oh good, someone knows my name. I was going to introduce myself. I, I am uh, Forrest Kirchenbauer. I'm an assistant pastor at the Fremont campus and uh, been there for quite a while and actually has some time that I spent here when the church was transitioning under uh, Grace Community Church and uh, definitely recognize uh, some folks back in that time that uh, we came and filled the pulpit. So good to be with you here today and hope all of you are doing well. I'm glad for the opportunity to cover for Pastor Harold and hopefully he's able to, to have some time away with his family and, and to rest. I've known Harold for a long time. I wanted to tell you that I was his younger brother, but I don't want to start, <laughs> start any rumors. But um, Harold and I go way back, actually, and am um, just always thankful for his ministry. And I know he's a good guy, and I know he has a pastor's heart. I know that he loves you and prays for you. So it's just a privilege to be here this morning. I'm going to look at Luke chapter 10. You can turn there. We'll have some other scriptures we're going to look at today. But I'm very excited about this title. In fact, when I heard that we were doing a series on this, it just uh, it got me excited. My City, My Responsibility. And part of that, when I, when I hear that, I, it's very missional, I take it personally because it's my city or it's my responsibility, but I also feel a, a corporate kind of um, energy there because it's not just something, i got to go do this, but it's something i got to do this with others. The church, we're called with our brothers and sisters in Christ to reach and connect and love on our city. So I, I love that part about it. But as exciting as it can be, it can also be pretty scary uh, because of the size of it, because of the depth, the difficulty of making connections, to connect people to God, and to, to be able to help people, the needs of people just is enormous. So it's definitely overwhelming in a sense. But I'm thankful for how we're challenged in God's Word about this responsibility. Last week, Pastor Harold spent time out of Colossians talking to you and encouraging you of the importance of our conduct, the importance of praying uh, for others, to reaching out and and to share with the right response, seasoned with grace. And so I know that he challenged everyone to invite uh, three people, and of course you see the series next week, a great opportunity to invite others and to connect with your neighborhood. Today I'm going to continue the series by looking at a very famous parable that I'm sure you're familiar with, that concerns the gospel and explains it how it's a gift to the city. I know I've been a part of a lot of churches who are very good at preaching the gospel, but it seemed like it just stayed within the walls of that church and not a lot of outreach. And then I know there's a lot of churches that look at their call or their mission is to go and do a bunch of good works in the community that Like, that's what Jesus would do. And so they're very busy and organized about doing that, but not taking the gospel. I know the statistics show that church attendance is down, but, you know, here in America, even in small towns, there are so many church buildings. And we even have huge churches, with large congregations and large budgets, and all kinds of technology that allows us to communicate and illustrate the gospel like never before. But it seems to me, while we have all that and all that ability, it seems that our culture is really in trouble. And not just in trouble and struggling in areas like poverty and brokenness, but, but also you see some very disturbing effects in our culture going on where so many people, in spite of our education, in spite of the modernization, it seems like so many people are struggling with depression, and the need for drugs, alcohol, and then so much suicide. It's, just, it's a sad thing. And so definitely, like never before, our culture needs to hear about God. Would you agree? They need to hear what we are to live and what we are to share. Before I get into Luke chapter 10, I'm going to share a personal moment that Jesus allows us to see of him going into the cities. And it's found in Matthew 9, in verse 35. It says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So we see that this is something Jesus practiced, his own contact in the city. Verse 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, and therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The first thing, his first response in the cities that he tells is that he's, he was filled with compassion. There was an emotional compassion, not a judgment or a disdain. There was empathy and sympathy. And he was face to face with what was going on. He describes there that, that there was distress. And distress has to do with the physical related hardships. Things that poverty and, and brokenness and sickness and loss, all those things bring a lot of dysfunction and difficulty to a culture. But also, he said they were dispirited. That's kind of the psychological hardship broken families I'm sure there was harassment I'm sure there was oppression I'm sure there was racism that's not a new thing and so all the things that come with that they basically were experiencing hopelessness and he compares them to being shepherdless being like sheep that are wandering or clueless or have come to a place where it's there's no point which is a very dangerous place for a culture and an in indefinite need of leadership and he calculates this and he says to his disciples the math here is really bad because the need is huge but the workers to make contact with this pain are very few and while it's sad because so many are distressed and dispirited there's a sense where it's hopeful because He's saying that it's like a harvest. It's ready. It's ready for workers to make contact to it. In other words, he's not saying it's hopeless, don't even bother. He's saying, no, this is the problem in the math. So the prayer was that there would be more that would go and make contact. See, I think Jesus, when he left us, as he said in the Great Commission, he He didn't stay to continue to preach the gospel. He gave that to us. In a sense, we're partners with him. He's sharing the project of connecting God and love to the world through us. And what a great responsibility. And he wanted the disciples to see that. And any follower of Christ needs to see, this is my responsibility. And I don't know how you even begin to tackle or engage in this responsibility if you have no compassion. That's what he demonstrated. That's what we need to do. I know early on in my faith journey as a young guy, is this verse really hit me. And in a sense, when I I read that and saw that Jesus had this kind of compassion, I felt, I need to join. I need to volunteer. I need to participate. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know much of the Bible, but I just felt, yeah, this is what I need to do. And I felt also, not just my own personal, but I felt like I want to do whatever I can to help my church to participate and to make contact and to relieve pain and share the good news of Jesus Christ. So It's a powerful passage and important for us. To share with our city. So, I want to look at this parable. It's going to teach some really incredible things. It was very misunderstood. We'll we'll explain that in just a moment. It's got some powerful things to tell us today. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I know we're all very familiar with it. Parables were to tell a story to be able to point to some kind of truth. And Jesus used that a lot. In fact, in Mark chapter 4, It says, with many such parables he was speaking the word to them, so far as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his disciples. So it was purpose that he used this form of communication. And a parable is designed for you to look and to listen to what is being said. There's a point in there. And if you're, if that's what's needed, if you are full of pride or arrogance or disinterest, you're going to miss it. And the idea that this point is hidden isn't to confuse, but it, it really directly relates to where your heart is if you are full of pride and will reject or block it or distort it, or whether you'll listen and submit and understand. And even the disciples, so they still had a, lot, a long way to go, the disciples still needed things privately shared with them to help them understand. In Luke chapter 10, verse 23 is where I want to start reading. He he expands on what I just said there out of Mark. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see things which you see and did not see them. And to hear the things which you hear, you he did not hear them. In a sense, the pride that's in leaders blocks their sight and blocks their understanding. Him using that this is something that can happen to prophets and happen to kings. That means religious leaders and political figures, they can miss it because of deep arrogance and self-righteousness. So this parable, we need to listen to the point and listen clearly what is being taught here because it's critical to our mission. It contains, first of all, a question. And it's a question that really everyone should ask. And I'm going to ask you to ask that of yourselves today in Luke 10, verse 25. It says, And a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, here's that question, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? And how does it read to you? the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. But the lawyer here, wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, it's very critical to read these passages we've just read before we get into the story of the Good Samaritan. Because the, that parable, that story, is going to address the answer of that question, who, who is my neighbor? Or, I'm sorry, who is, who, how do we in, inherit eternal life? So it's very important. Not to disconnect them. Now, this lawyer, not in the sense of civil law like we would understand a lawyer to be, but connected to the Mosaic Law. In other words, he really understood the Old Testament and the things that were in the law of God. It says that he was testing Jesus, and it's debated to whether he was trying to that he had some kind of bad intention or if he was just seeking information. But what he does here is when he's asked this, Jesus turns it, and instead of answering the question, asks him a question, something G- Jesus did very often. It's called the Socratic method, which kind of avoids the argument, and it turns it into Jesus evaluating his answer instead of him evaluating Jesus' answer. Because the answer that he gave t- is the answer that we all tend to give when it comes to how do we en- how do we have eternal life? Basically, the lawyer reading the law says, you got to love God and you got to love your neighbor. In other words, you basically need to do good or be good. And when you think about this, because I have asked that question to many, it's commonly answered when you say, do you love God or where is your faith? That People will point to different associations they have with their faith. I do a lot of funerals. And in my interview time with the family, because often the person, the deceased, I, I don't know them. So I ask that question every time. Tell me something about their faith. And it's often answered with, Oh, years ago they used to be involved at church. Or they would say, Oh, they have a Bible. You know, or they, they would say, you know, oh, I know they pray. Um, so it seemed always a little bit like, okay, is that the answer or does that equal what it is to love God with everything you have? So we ask that question and that goes on. But also I notice that doing a lot of funerals that there, there are people who will tell you they're not believers, they're not churchgoers, but they are sure that their loved one is up there with grandma, riding a Harley, having a great time. They don't even believe in God, but they They just somehow believe there still is some kind of afterlife experience where it basically works out that they get to do anything they want to do or maybe some things they couldn't do here. So it is an interesting thing when it comes to answering this about how do you inherit eternal life. But the lawyer here who knew the law, knew the law of God, he answers, and he lays this out, and Jesus even says, how do you, how do you read this? And he answer, his answer was spot on. You love God. And the way he describes that means you love God with all you have. So I look at that means, okay, how to get to heaven is loving God intensely with everything you have. And so he also said to love your neighbor as yourself. Less description, but if you just start to think about how much do I love myself? If we're honest, we all love ourselves pretty intensely. And so it looks like how do you get to heaven? Is I got to love God intensely with everything I have, but I also need to love another, a neighbor. I need to love them as I love myself. So it's a pretty intense answer. And Jesus said, Yeah, do that and you will live. So he agrees. The question is answered. But he. Something pricked his conscience, and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm unsettled here with this neighbor. Who are we talking about when it comes to me? See, there always seems to be a problem with the way that we answer this question, very commonly. Here, he's wanting clarification on who is my neighbor. You know, it's interesting that he doesn't ask for any clarity of what it means to love God or whether he's performing well. In that maybe he thought that he was doing a pretty good job, so I don't need any clarity on that. Oh, I got that loving God stuff down, but uh, I've got a question about this neighbor part. But does loving God to that degree everything we have that sounds pretty difficult? And I think if we all honestly weigh that out, I think we would agree it's kind of impossible. Does eternal life demand? That kind of love for God. Jesus confirmed it and said that's what's in the law. The lawyer's focus, though, here is he must realize that he couldn't possibly love everyone or his neighbor like that. So he says, who? Give me some more clarity. Probably, and likely, as you'll see the way Jesus answers, probably looking for a way to draw some kind of parameter that these are the people that you must be talking about that I need to love. In fact, the word neighbor in the Greek just means someone nearby, which we would understand that. Or a neighbor could be someone that you have an association with. In some way, those descriptions, though, are kind of limiting the issue. So he could interpret that, all right, well, I know I love God enough, so I probably am fine in the neighbor part because I know who I love. But I wonder if he's being honest or pricked in his conscience because there's someone that he doesn't love. And obviously, that's what Jesus is going to put his finger on. Because as a Jew, and the Jews in that time period, they hated a group of people called the Samaritans. So when he wishes to justify himself, he's looking for some tangible measure of his performance towards his neighbor. If going to heaven is based on my performance of loving God and neighbor, and my neighbor is that even possible? And that's a question for you and I today. If you're asked, "How do I get eternal life?" That's how we need to look at that. Are we loving God to the degree it described, and do we love our neighbor as ourselves? And obviously, the parable is going to explain a little bit. So he gives this clarity on how. This lawyer falls short on loving his neighbor. That's the Good Samaritan. Verse 30. And Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, The Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Now note this in a parable. They're not really real characters that we're talking about. But what Jesus does here is he gives certain information about their identity, their response, or their responsibility, and also about their character. allows us to evaluate all those things. First of all, the assault that takes place here, this man, possible he, he was Jewish, as he came from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's not said, and honestly, it really isn't important. Truth is, he was a human being. And he's assaulted by robbers. And we got enough information, if you just try to think about that, that they stripped him, they beat him, and they left him for half dead, which means the injuries were serious. This is a serious situation. This is a vicious attack. It's critical. And I wish that I, in trying to envision that, I wish I didn't have so many examples by watching the news today and watching in our own cities here in America such viciousness. First of all, the, even the ability of Americans, the way we're educated, the way we understand things about history, that we would be out beating other people and leaving them. Maybe even videotaping them. So I want us to climb into that because I think we understand this. that That's how serious this situation was. They took his goods, but cared nothing about his life. So then we look at the characters. The priest. In helping us identify that, a priest is someone whose position is to lead people to God and to represent God to the people. So clearly his identity is that he should be someone that is good. But his response, the action that he took, he took none. And he not only just passed by, but it says That he passed by on the other side, which gives the idea he comes upon it, sees it, and says, I got to get to the other side. I got to get as far from this situation as I can. And for that reason, we all, anyone, would judge this and say, He has zero concern for this broken human, zero concern for God. Because even a non believer would say, If you don't care about other people, how in the world is the love of God in you? The second. Character is the Levite, and his identity—a a Le- Levite—is not of Aaron's family, not of the priesthood. But the Levites were definitely involved in temple worship. They were involved in the liturgy and the rituals. And in a sense, your priests are kind of high and removed, and have some real incredible uh, obligations they do to carry out the, the duties of the temple. Where the priests—I'm sorry—where the Levites. These would be ones that would have more contact with the rituals and with the people. If anything, they would know the faces and know people, and yet his response was the same. His response was, as it says, likewise, took no responsibility and therefore showed no character. So Jesus' story here frames these two who should and could be a good neighbor to this robbed man. we come to the third one and notice he says but here's an example of a good neighbor this is someone who's on a journey someone who's got an agenda he's got somewhere to be but all of that stopped and just for a moment on the identity though i've said a few things the samaritan the perspective jews had of samaritans is that they were evil they were the blight of the world There's nothing good. You talk about deep racial divide between the Jews and the Samaritans. And that comes from a long history when Israel went through a time where the kingdom split and the northern tribes intermarried with those who weren't Jews. And so the Jews in the southern tribes, you know, they're looking at themselves. We're the pure Jews. These guys are not. There's something wrong in them racially. We cannot connect. And with that, of course, a whole lot of things came in with what they believed about God, how they worshiped, and so forth. And so this led to a lot of conflict, a lot of divide, and basically a lot of hatred. They, they, they disrupted the temple when they tried to rebuild it. and So they looked at him as half-breed traitors. And that's important to know. And Jesus knows exactly what he's doing when he brings these characters in. He's saying, now the Samaritans. Now the responsibility, his first response was compassion. Does that sound familiar? Like what Jesus did. In fact, you're not going to do anything. None of us will do anything if we don't start with compassion. But he came to him versus go to the other side. He bandaged him. He medicinally did everything that he could for him. He put him on his own beast and took him to an inn and took care of him and even spent the night putting his own journey on hold. And he provided money to the innkeeper, something he didn't need to do. He went beyond even what he could do for him at that time, and then said he would even check back. So when you look at his response, it's incredible. Therefore, revealing his character. Because here, he didn't evaluate anything about labels and especially if this man was a Jew, he didn't look at any of those things with skin color or any distinction. He saw a fellow man, he was moved, and he acted. Basically, he saw himself in a ditch and did what he hoped someone else would do for him. So, loving a neighbor, Jesus goes on in verse 36 Which of these three? do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy toward him. So loving your neighbor as yourself is quite intense. It involves action. It involves compassion. And that's the standard of what it is to love your neighbor. Mercy. Showing mercy meant he acted upon this person. It made him have contact with the bloody body. It made him allow for the blood to get on his own beast. He got his hands dirty. And it cost him to make sure that this other human was taken care of. See, Jesus here, this parable, was to remove the disguise that our prejudices place on another Because we can look at another human and because they're different than us, because somehow they maybe even don't like what we believe, that somehow we're removed from responding to them as a human being. Now, back to the question on eternal life. How, in other words? So, So basically what's laid out here is to have eternal life, you need to love God with everything. That means intent. And you need to go this far with your neighbor. So Jesus told this to expose the shortness that he had with his neighbor for sure. But notice, he didn't inquire anything about how do I love God. And we know that God's not the one that's hurt in the ditch. But basically, in your religiosity, you would pass by God. You would pass him on the other side. He's basically saying, of all your religiosity, you're not all in. And the story here was to help the lawyer to see for himself that he would have passed by the neighbor. He would be that priest. He would be that Levite. And the lawyer knew the answers. He knew what to say about loving God and loving your neighbor. But as far as performing it, he'd pass by. So the point of this parable isn't how to love a neighbor, even though that's there, and I'm going to comment on that in just a moment. But it really is, how does someone have eternal life? And when you look at the comparison of loving God intensely with everything you have and loving your neighbor to this kind of intensity, if you and I are honest today, I know we all fall short. Would you agree? We fall short. That's the standard. That's what it is. Do that and you'll live. But we all fall short, and that's the point. All of us need a savior. When someone asks, "Are you going to heaven?" we often that that first thing that people will do is evaluate, "Well, I, you know, yeah, I love God or I got some kind of religious connection or association and yeah, I'm a good guy. I take care of people. I did this. I baked cookies 3 years ago for someone." You know, it's just it's just that. We have this general tendency to answer that question that we're okay, we're good. But Jesus is trying to point out, no, the way to heaven is that intense, And if you don't meet up to that, then you need a Savior. You need help. And we know that's why Jesus came. Because we can't perform well enough to go to heaven. When I When I... Was reviewing this, there's a lot of sadness in my own heart as a believer when I think of how much I fall short on loving God. You know, even if you're a pastor, it 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 doesn't mean that you are intensely, always loving God with everything you have. I fall short. Those who know me know that's true. So it isn't anything about a title or anything you would wear. It makes me weep when I think about that. And I hope you feel the same as you're a believer. You you fall short. You love him. He's worthy. We sing the songs. He's worthy. And we have church every week because we need that reminder of who he is and what he's done for us because we want to tell him that we love him. But there's also an honesty where I, I, I fall short. There's an honest humility about that. And it also, when I read this, it makes me want to weep when it comes to how I've fallen short on loving others. Sometimes, unfortunately, but honestly, purposely, someone ticked me off. Someone I didn't care for what they believe or how they handled me or how they handled another. I have found my heart in those places towards others. And sometimes just ignoring. Sometimes being so busy about self that I was not paying attention to my neighbor. You know, some people that we that we have failed to help, were actually in the ditches that we dug for them. They were experiencing the loss from things that we stole from them. They were stripped by what we were consuming their needs and leaving them naked. I can't tell you, I mean, I spend a lot of time in counseling and so much of it has to do with the the mistreatment that goes on in families. So, you know, love your neighbor. Hey, i got a family. I love my wife. I love my kids. That's where there's so much failure. We all fail. Our families, our neighbors, our church members, our cities, our nation, the world. So who really can say that I got these two things down? So Jesus, that's the standard. He's elevating from this story wants them to know the standard for eternal life that we fall short, and Jesus is the only answer. So the question for all of us today, are you trusting? What are you trusting for eternal life? Is it your religion? Is it your good perception of your good work? That's a serious question today, and that's what he wanted this lawyer to visit. Now about the misunderstood part. Some begin the the Good Samaritan story by starting in verse 30. And basically, if you look it up, go ahead and look up a lot of lessons start right in verse 30. Jesus is going to teach us how to treat others. If you don't visit the first part, you're going to miss everything. But this second part is really good. It just gets misunderstood. So that's why we need to start in verse 23 because it's an answer about eternal life. But I think also it's very dangerous for any unbeliever to start it there because Any of us can come up with that we think we're good enough to go to heaven and that your good that you do is the way. It's dangerous for a true believer to have a love of God and yet at the same time not participate in loving others. And it's possible that we could be like the priest and the Levite, doing our duties but avoiding the pain of others. I think it's dangerous for churches Because churches can have their creeds and their rituals, their expressions and their traditions, and yet still be shut off from their neighbors and from their city. Or churches do this they can set their mission to do good in the community and yet not take the gospel, joining a social gospel in a sense, and really, as I said earlier, really being unfair to humanity. Jesus demonstrated both. Commission the church to take the gospel and to take the message of His saving grace to every creature and to do good as we go because that's the right thing no matter what we get on us. No matter how the response will be to us, that's what we're called to do. I've been at Grace Community Church for the last a little over 14 years. And one thing that I appreciate about being on staff there is is the heartbeat of the church. And I say all that because I'm really talking about you, Grace Point and our Tiffin campus. All This is the heartbeat that we would be busy, dedicated to the gospel, that we would take any of our resources, our gifts, and do everything we can to explain the gospel so that people can hear and understand. That's what we're committed to. And I'm so glad to be a part of that. In fact, I, I noticed when I came in out there, you have our church motto with the four deeds that we, that we are um, as, as a church to put those things into practice. That should be driving what we do for everyone to help people to discover truth and then decide on Jesus. To demonstrate change. That's something that's ongoing. Helping believers have change happen in their life. And then also to deploy for others. And that's a very serious mission. I'm glad that's all part of the vision statement of our churches. We have also there, it's a class I teach. Actually, Harold used to teach that class there at at, uh, Fremont. Maybe he has that here. We call it a REACH class. But it's to equip our members on how we can share what God has done in our life. It's to be able to share the gospel with others. And one thing in the REACH class is, is how we approach your participation in the gospel, the congregation, is that it doesn't have to look the same way. We have a method that we call the confrontational method, and that's for those personalities that like to confront. Of course, that should be seasoned with grace, respectful, but yes, just hitting it on the head, talking to people about truth. And some are wired that way, and some aren't. And then we also teach about the intellectual approach. So some people love to reason. They love apologetics. They love to explain and get into deeper things. And they're wired up to do that. Some are not wired up to do that. But we also have the testimonial approach. And we encourage people, you may not be able to confront and to uh, explain deep things, but you can share what Jesus has done for you. So you need to participate and tell your story. We actually go through how to tell a story. How do you tell your story and learn that? It's so valuable. Every Christian should be able to do that. And then, then we also have the invitational, which is a huge method in our, our churches, and that is invite. Invite people. You can at least say, hey, would you come? We're having this at our church. This is going on. We're going to be talking about this. We've got this thing going on. You know, Invite. Everyone should be able to do that. Even Harold asked that you would ask three people. And then the last thing that we encourage people is in service, taken from Acts chapter 9, where Dorcas, Tabitha, said this about her This woman was abounding with deeds and kindness and charity, which she did continually, which earns huge respect to when you want to share the gospel. Something all of us should be doing. How can I be doing good? so that it increases that credibility. Because as our cities wrestle with our message, we want them to confirm that at least we love them. It's so valuable. So I'm thankful for grace, its commitment to that. I'm also thankful for grace and his commitment to loving our neighbor. We're not perfect. We've got a long way to go. And I see, because of the seriousness of the pain that's in our culture, we need to get serious with how do we move and adjust to that. Because the changes make it very uncomfortable for us with all that's going on out there. We need to rise to the occasion. The evil one has wrecked humanity on so many deep levels. It's more than just poverty. There's so much, as I explained earlier, that, that young people are struggling with psychologically and about themselves. It's just so deep. So while we preach the Gospel, we first want to take care of the church. We're commanded to do that in Galatians. We're told to first take care of the church, and then we take care out into the city. And the reason for that is here gives us an opportunity to learn how to love and to perfect our love and to make here a loving atmosphere for our guests. I mean, we're compelling inviting people to come, up, come in, and they come in. We're all mad at each other, all mad at the pastor, that's not going to fly. They need to come where people are seasoned in love for one another. If there's no love here, there will be no love outside. And it's also to perfect that, the love we have here that we spill that love into the city. I know that ministries we have in our campuses, is, they're newer, um, are, are expanding into some of these things, but we offer life support, helping people through addictions and struggle. We have a divorce care class with that difficulty that people go through. We have a food pantry. We offer financial assistance. We offer counseling. We, In a larger way outside of our city, we sponsor two orphanages and help refugees. We've actually, internally in our church, have developed something called a care team. And that is where we've started a Facebook group where those members of our church can be a part of that, and learning through Facebook in that private group, they can learn about who needs to be prayed for, who needs a card, who needs a visit, who needs a meal. We've also inserted in that, hey, if someone's needing some help, there's a project um, that they need, and maybe you have the skills, maybe you just have time, you can give a hand. Um, we, we do that to network, trying to care for the body of Christ. We've also taken that and now are working into our community. We just did a, a project that we launched here a couple weeks ago called Your Work Matters and sent a little pen with that, that phrase on it and some candy and a card that's handwritten by people on the care team that just tells, hey, we appreciate what you do. We've sent that to the police department, the fire department, to our jobs and family services and county workers, those in the, um, the foster care program. All of that just to out, start an outreach to start connecting, we care, and what can we do? We've also met with those leaders and says there are things that we could be doing to lighten the load and to connect love. So that's what, that's what we're doing, and I, and I believe our campuses are going to be working on it. I'm sure there's already certain things that you're doing that as well. One thing that we came across a few years ago, circumstantially, was a, a family in our church that, in a sense, was in a ditch. Through just economic struggle, struggle and uh, disability of the father, this family of five was was found themselves in in a very difficult living situation. And when I came across it through helping them with actually getting their pipes, uh, they froze during the winter. And when we when we got understanding of what they were living in, it, it just broke our hearts. So it took time to trying to figure this out: How do we help? How do they? How can they get out of this trailer? They they lived on a property, uh, with, you know, paying rent to a landlord, and they could not afford to get their property off there. It wouldn't even move. It was so bad condition. They were connected to another piece of property there that they could not get out of. That had a hard time finding somewhere else, and it, it led our church to put together, over time, a, a team. And this is part of this is caring for our own, but it's part of the teams we want to do to get out there in the community. So I have a video to show you. Of us taking care of getting rid of those trailers for them. That's a hard worker, huh? When that first came the scene that need. We were overwhelmed. We didn't know who has in their church people that can, you know, run those backhoes and all that equipment. And it just thing led one. This led to another, and that all came about. And so you know, who knows what you're capable of doing? But if your focus is on there, you may be amazed. And the other cool thing is that we brought, because that was kind of disturbing to the neighbors, we brought them cookies and offered them pizza and just kind of explained what we were doing and uh, even gave a gift to the landlord and to share with them the grace, invited them to church. You could see we were wearing gray shirts. But that was all for us to try to love on someone in our, in our church family, but also to love in the community and prepare ourselves for it. See, I think it's too easy for us to build walls. I think it's too easy for us to get offended and discriminate against people who don't like the church or don't like God, maybe don't like our politics, and say, hey, I'm not going to go towards them. It also could be true that you run across people, you say, well, they're in the ditch because they put themselves in the ditch. But when we look at Jesus' example as he went through the cities, his attitude, and I'm sure the people that he was seeing who were distressed, I'm sure that some of that was self-inflicted. But he was moved with compassion. In fact, it's historically known when there's been pain, pandemics, Christians move towards pain. Jails, Christian ministries are there in jail. Sure, some of those people are convicted felons, but there are ministries where those people go to them, Christians go and say, Jesus loves you. And how can I minister to you, brother? That's, that's taking responsibility with the gospel. That's what we're supposed to do. We have Heartbeat is a, a ministry there in... in um, Fremont and Tiffin, and you know, that helps girls with unwanted pregnancies, gives them an option, comes to them though in that ditch, and, and gives them alternatives that, that will really be a long-term blessing for them, for those babies, and so forth. So that's our response. That's what we need to be asking and working in our heart. God, where is my heart? Where is that? Our cities need the gospel. And they need the church to show love in action. It's our responsibility. If the band would come, and I'd like to just close it with this. We've been challenged in the Gospel today. The question, have you humbled your heart with that explanation? Nobody loves God like they, with everything they have, and nobody loves their neighbor as their self. So have you humbled yourself recognizing you need a Savior. And I want to point you to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior today. I'd be glad to talk with you afterwards about that. I'll make myself available. Today we've been challenged to participate in the Gospel. However God has wired us, let's get involved. We've been challenged to have compassion. That we would, as God's beloved, would look at the world as those God loves. Because He said, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. We change our filter. There are no Democrats. There are no Republicans. they are human beings who need the love of God. And we're challenged today to take action in our church and outside our church. The best thing that we could do today is leave with this. God, I am here. I am available. I want to do your will. I take it as my responsibility to go to Pastor Harold and say, Pastor Harold, I'm here. I'm available. Whatever you need here, whatever you're willing to do out in the community, you can count on me. Let's pray together. God, you're so good and thank you for your word that challenges us and guides us and inspires us to have your heart and your mind So Lord, may we be faithful to that. May in our remembrance and our reminders about how much you love us, that that would change us in such a way that we would love others. Thank you for this church. Bless it. Bless Pastor Harold and all the volunteers and leaders and everyone here, God. May this be a light in Northwood. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.